You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Captain Paramount has made a lot of money syndicating the series and licensing all the merchandising spin-offs. But the thing that tantalized Trekkies the most was the possibility of a full-length feature motion picture. And at a Hollywood news conference best described as a media event, the Trekkies' fondest wish was granted. The announcement of a full-length, $15 million feature Star Trek starring the original cast. William Shatner as Captain Kirk, Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock, DeForest Kelly as Bones McCoy, James Doohan as Scotty, the chief engineer, George Takei as Sulu, the ship's helmsman. Nichelle Nichols as Uhura, the communications officer. Leonard Nimoy was the last person to join the movie cast and was asked why he was a holdout. I don't think it was a question of holdout. We've had a a long and complicated relationship, uh, I mean, Paramount and myself, for the last couple of years. And probably the thing that took the most time is the fact that the mail service between here and Balkan is still pretty slow. Our character has always been part of my life. I have never tried in any way to negate or reject that. I've been very proud of the fact that I'm associated with the character. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. there and welcome once again to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to continue with Star Trek, one of our current themes that we've been exploring. And this time around we are going to sort of continue with the motion picture theme, but we're going to approach it from the angle of how it got started. What we have in mind here today is looking at Star Trek Phase 2 the television series that was supposed to bring back Star Trek after the original series and before they had any, you know, final idea of doing an actual motion picture, there was a television show, you know, in the works that a lot of people might not be aware of. Some of the aspects of the show eventually would find their way into the motion picture and future films and also into future Star Trek television series. But... A lot of that material kind of has been tucked away, I don't want to say hidden, but kind of difficult to find at times. But there's a book I recently read, a couple of small little documentaries here or there that you might be able to see. So let's take a look at Star Trek Phase 2. Latu, Mirada, must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books. 
magazines, periodicals, newspapers. All right, as promised, a few episodes ago, we are continuing with our backstory or stories having to do with Star Trek The Motion Picture. In the process of doing some of the research last time, including re-watching the motion picture, the director's cut, specifically the director's cut, the director's edition, as it was uh, packaged, there were a number of documentaries in the supplemental section that are very, very interesting, especially one having to do with how the motion picture came about. Now, we kind of knew this already, just general knowledge of information, most Star Trek, you know, fans know that there was an attempt to make another series right before the motion picture was released, but that was kind of scrapped and the motion picture instead is what we got. However, there was a lot of what the motion picture consists of, meaning the story, the designs, the look of a lot of the things there came directly from this early attempt to revitalize the series. Now, on the motion picture, like I mentioned, uh, bonus material, uh, there is one documentary having to do with Star Trek Phase 2, which was the name of what this new series was going to be. And in the interviews within the documentary, there are two people there uh, that have apparently written a book all about just this particular thing, the making of or the attempt to make a new series. Their names are Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. And the name of the book is called Star Trek Phase 2, The Lost Series. Now, the book, it's a large size book, kind of soft cover book. If you remember the original uh, Star Trek uh, Omnipedias, I think they were called, or chronologies, you know, those large size books that had soft covers. But that's what we're dealing here, this book. It was a little difficult to find because there's there, there weren't a lot of copies out there. You know, I figure you, I would punch in the name and it, on eBay, for example, you know, 15 would show up because there's always 15 copies of everything uh, on eBay, especially Star Trek. But no, it was, a, it was a little bit difficult, but I was able to find one for a reasonable price. I think I got it for something like maybe 15 bucks or something like that. But there were some that were really expensive because a lot of them were overseas. I think they were from England or something. So this is a book I strongly, strongly recommend because, again, once we focus on something and we start to kind of dig and dig and, and try to go into the minutiae of what we're talking about, this is all packed in one nice book. Now, the book, I would say about a third of the book is the history of what took place. And the other two thirds are scripts that were written in different manners, whether they're first draft, second drafts, full-blown scripts that were never produced, basically, because this is what this series is going to be about. So let's go back and give a little bit of a background into what we're talking about here in terms of, obviously, the, the series came and went. Three seasons, you know, we all know about the writing campaign of the second season and how it got revived. And by the time we got to the third season, everything kind of fell apart. The show was buried on a Friday night back when I think a Friday night was like the the slot of death. <laughs> Not until I believe the X-Files was a fantasy sci-fi kind of show able to capitalize on the Friday night slot. But back in the 60s, you know, mid to late 60s, the Friday night was where you went to die <laughs> for television. 
But what ended up happening, which a lot of people also know this, is that through syndication, Star Trek got very popular. And one of the main reasons that the authors of the book argue that that happened was the audience was already there, but the audience was younger people. It wasn't the overall spectrum of, you know, whatever, uh, zero to a hundred year olds. And the reason for this is because up until that year, up until the last year of Star Trek, the Nielsen ratings were computed in that manner. They just counted heads, period. So the popularity of a show or the ratings of a show were based on just raw numbers of heads per people, not specific age groups. So what's happening here is a year later, you know, after Star Trek's off the air, they start counting demographics. They start kind of breaking it down into, you know, younger people, you know, mid, middle-aged people, older people, the 18 to, what is it, 34 or something like that, 18 to 25, I forget what the actual range is, but that, that sweet spot that they like to hit with ratings. And that's what they started to realize is that all of a sudden, these repeats of the show that have been sold to syndicators, basically, are getting really good ratings, you know, even at six o'clock in the afternoon when they're competing against the local news shows, they're getting really good numbers. And they realize, oh my God, what did we do? We just, you know, we just dumped something that could potentially be making us a lot of money. The other thing that also happened around that time is that in 1972, through the popularity of all these syndicated Star Trek airings all over the country and all over the world, really, they were going, they were going everywhere. The first Star Trek, the first official Star Trek convention took place and they were only expecting something like 600 people, let's say, and they got over 3,000 people. So... All of a sudden, again, the studios, the networks, they're realizing, oh my God, this is just insane. They're, they're, these people are out there and there's money to be made. The following year, they had another convention and the numbers pretty much doubled and they almost kept doubling or even higher in terms of how many people were showing up for these things. So the bells are going off. Now, I know that the overall mythology, <laughs> even of Star Trek, of how it got revived, has a lot to do with Star Wars. I know we credit Star Wars for everything in terms of all of a sudden every studio wanted their own Star Wars. That's still somewhat true. However, in the meantime, they did start to think about reviving Star Trek in some shape or form because of a combination of those things. The ratings were there and the interest was there with people showing up to these conventions and you know, continually asking, when are we going to see more Star Trek? So as early as March of 1972, NBC starts to have conversations with Gene Roddenberry about the possibility of maybe, you know, reviving the series. Now, you got to remember, Paramount owns the rights to the series, let's say, and they're the ones who would be making it if a new series were to come along. And NBC was the distributor at the time that was distributing Star Trek. And this, you know, originally it was Desilu Studios, who then, you know, I guess got bought out by the NBC. But NBC was the like the last place where uh, Star Trek was living at. So for the next two or three years, Paramount also began negotiations with Gene Roddenberry. And again, the possibility of a movie, the possibility of a TV show, it was it was a mishmash of possibilities that they were kind of talking about. 
So the first thing that they were able to put together was an animated show. Uh, and this brings us to Filmation Animation. This is a studio that we talked about in the past. Uh, I believe they might have been the ones who did Flash Gordon. We talked about Flash Gordon a couple episodes ago. And they put out, they were able to put out a show, obviously with everybody's blessing, in 1973 that brought back a lot of the cast and the voice, obviously the voices, but this was an animated show. And overall, it lasted about a year. And I know that Gene Roddenberry wasn't very happy with it, but it was at least something to put out there to kind of give the fans a little something to chew on. By May of 1975, the animated show is already way off the air. Gene Roddenberry moves in to Paramount offices. He's able to get some of his old offices back from when he was uh, doing Star Trek and to officially start writing a possible movie called The God Thing. And this would be a Star Trek movie. The hope would be that this movie would be shot starting in July of 1976 and later it was kind of pushed to January of 77. You know, they, they had to kind of tweak the the estimated shooting schedule of this potential film and the budget was five million dollars the estimated budget was five million dollars so he started writing you know he had to find a story now granted the story that he's looking at right now it's a very big big story it's a story that you might say later finds its its way into other <laughs> star trek films maybe star trek 5 because this story dealt with remember the name of it is called the god thing and it dealt with finding God or finding somebody who claims to be God, some space being, you know, claiming that he is our God. So it's an interesting, big, big premise. By August of 75, Roddenberry submits his script and it gets rejected. The studio is not happy with what they're getting. Other writers are brought in to take a crack at the script. And basically all stories are pretty much rejected. By September of 76, a year later, and this is supposed to be already around the time where this film would have been starting to, uh, to be shot, they have the, uh, the inauguration of the Space Shuttle Enterprise. They had another write-in campaign where the first space shuttle, which was not supposed to be the actual shuttle that goes out into space, but the, the one that orbits, you know, the, for the test flights, it was named, they, they managed to, uh, you know, with, with the suggestions of the fans, to name it Enterprise. Everybody shows up for a big ceremony. So all of a sudden, once again, the whole Star Trek mythology, the, the big, crowds the big interest in star trek is flourishing and you know once again you know it's it kind of like it goes through these little peaks and valleys of people kind of start forgetting about it and then all of a sudden boom it's back in the news again it's and and all you know all the executives at paramount get excited about it again it's, okay we got to get this thing going you know it it kind of um re-energizes the interest for for more star trek so next they'd have a story called star trek planet of titans and they're like that's it we're doing this story Sometime between 76 and 77, Philip Kaufman is selected to be the director. The budget is going to be $7.5 million. Even noted <laughs> concept illustrator is brought in to help design the Enterprise, Ralph McQuarrie, as he has just finished his work on Star Wars. You know, Star Wars is still being produced, but Ralph McQuarrie is free to, you know, do some, I guess, freelance work for other people. He comes in and does some of this work. And what's cool about this work is that these concept designs of the Enterprise, the triangular Enterprise, is something that didn't make it, you know, all the way to this incarnation of Star Trek. 
whether the television show or the movie. However, that final design did make it all the way now to Star Trek Discovery. If you look at that ship, it is super, super heavily influenced by that design. In the book, you also find out that at one of the Next Generation episodes, I believe one of the uh, maybe Best of Both Worlds or one of those uh, Fighting the Borg type of episodes, apparently we do see a ship that kind of looks like that gets destroyed, I think, by the Borg or something like that. So it's funny they kind of put it there in the background as a, as a little homage. But hell, if you watch the uh, the new show now, you're going to see that ship and you're like, yep, that's it. That's the design right there. At first, this particular script for the Planet of Titans, you got to remember, a lot of times they kind of come up with a name <laughs> and then they have to come up with a story. Uh, you know, it's just it's weird how these things are done. But this particular first version of the script, they were already writing it without Shatner because they already kind of thought that they were going to have problems, you know, being able to hire some of these you know, ex-actors to come back to the show or that they would be demanding way too much money. So they purposely wrote it without him, uh, you know, just in case they couldn't get him. Now, this particular script had a number of similarities to some of the earlier ones that were rejected. And it had to do, yeah, again, with these titans or demigods or whatever in this other planet. So it, 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 no matter how you slice it, it always seemed to come back to this kind of big, grand you know, all-knowing being that comes after, you know, Earth, let's say. Now, they put this script together, and once again, it's rejected. By May of 77, Kaufman himself, the director that was hired, takes a crack at the script, also gets rejected. The budget at this point is climbing to about $10 million, the estimated budget. Kaufman leaves the film, but his following film after that is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. If you guys remember that film, that was his next big film. So, he, you know, he did pretty well. And he even got uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy <laughs> as part of his, uh, his next film. So now we are in the summer of 77. Star Wars explodes. And as I mentioned earlier, Star Trek is already in the works. But with the Star Wars explosion, initially, yes, all the heads turned at Paramount and said, oh my God. Is this for real? Can we really, you know, go all out and focus on science fiction fantasy? And the apparently the first initial reaction was, this is just a fluke. This is not a new trend. This is just a one-off kind of scenario that we're dealing with. So even though part of them are saying, oh my God, this is what we got to do, the majority decided, no, we're going to kind of stick to our plans go our way, we're going to do it at our own pace and not go crazy over it. But that same year, right around November, December, and really leading into the following year, into 1978, they realized that they made a mistake, that Star Wars is here to stay, and the reason being Close Encounters is released. And Close Encounters is another huge hit for another studio. Now, granted... Close Encounters didn't have the longevity and the franchise power of Star Wars, but at least those incoming numbers of money, basically, of success, is what really pushed Paramount over the edge to say, yeah, we were wrong. The Star Wars incident is not a fluke. It's here to stay, and everybody's going to be capitalizing from this. We might as well do, too. Everybody wants a sci-fi property. We have one right here under our nose. We've been trying to crack it. We can't crack it. We got to really focus on this and get it done. So what they come up with 
is not a movie, which is what they were originally thinking about. But instead, because they had this other plan in the works for quite a while, I imagine, and that is to form their own television network. Now, for people our age, people my age, when we grew up on television, television was a very different monster. Most of us, you know, I was even born in a different country, but we had the same situation where you go watch TV, you put on your three or four channels, and that's what you get back in the 70s. Same thing here. Now, in the States, things started to change a little bit when you introduced cable. And it's different incarnations of cable, what we would consider to be cable television. Or even satellite. You know, even if you... You can treat satellite also as an alternative way of getting television into your house. However, cable really was the next big step in television as far as competition. Because for the longest period of time, the only thing you ever had with television was your four, you know, four or five channels. You had an ABC, you had a CBS... You had an NBC. You pretty much had PBS, but PBS really didn't compete, you know, as far as original programming went, as far as Nielsen numbers. And you have your syndicated channels, your independents, that also did not compete because they really didn't provide, you know, credible competitive programming. So you got, it was basically the big three for a long time. Now, once you introduced cable, it took a while for cable to really start competing with the networks. HBO probably was the first one to really start producing some really serious enough shows to compete, start winning awards, start getting decent ratings, you know, your Sopranos, stuff like that, you know, your 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 big first monster shows that actually started to get people's attention. But when I was in college, I remember in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, that's when Fox came along and they formed their own network. And little by little, they started to have enough programming to be a network. You know, they had The Simpsons and Married with Children, a lot of sitcoms and stuff like that. But little by little, they ended up being a network. And now they are a network. They are the fourth network. Nowadays, you have even more competition because not only do you have the four networks, you have your cable shows, which a lot of different cable shows are heavily competing with networks. But now you have your streaming services. So there is, you know, a three-way battle between regular broadcasters and cable suppliers and streaming services. You know, cable, I would say cable slash dish, you know, satellite suppliers. Okay, well, the idea was that in 77... Paramount made the announcement, you know what, we're going to put out our own network, we're going to compete with the big boys, and our flagship show for our network is going to be Star Trek Phase 2. Yeah, they made a big deal out of it. The way we're going to roll it out is we're going to have a two-hour movie, you know, like a two-hour TV movie, and then we're going to do weekly shows after that for a total of about 13 shows. These shows will be followed every night by a two-hour original film, you know, Nothing to do with Star Trek, but that's how they were thinking of starting to kind of start filling those slots. Because remember, when you form your own network, most of the times, you don't have enough material. So you kind of just start slow. There's probably a lot of syndicated material in your network from your own library, possibly. But you do have your original shows there, you know, starting to populate the, the slate. Off the bat, one problem they already had was they weren't sure about Chatner, whether or not he would come on board. But... Nimoy already said he wasn't coming on board. The plan was for the series to continue. This was supposed to be a second five-year mission with 
theoretically the same crew and some new characters and depending on who would sign on or not sign on they would kind of substitute those characters with new ones so Nimoy off the bat said no so they already knew they had to replace Nimoy in the potential script for the story they created a character called Zahn who if you look at him you know he's supposed to be a full Vulcan not a half human half Vulcan individual like Spock he is a full Vulcan but he kind of fulfills the role of Spock and when you read how he's fleshed out and everything he would really become the personality of Data in the next generation a lot of these ideas even though they never made it to fruition, they were then saved and used way later, you know, on future incarnations, not only of Star Trek television shows, but Star Trek movies. A lot of that stuff carried over. You know, this stuff never goes away. It's just like Star Wars. It's like it's like concept art. It just sits there and somebody picks it up and runs with it later. You would also have a Commander Decker, Commander Will William Decker. And he is kind of like the number one, the, the second in command to the captain. At this time, again, they weren't sure if Shatner was going to be there, if he was going to show up or not, if he was going to sign. They had a definite no from Nimoy, but Shatner was on the fence. So they created a character that could easily take over for Shatner if Shatner decided not to do it, or if they could only afford Shatner to be on the show for a couple of episodes because he would want too much money, or whatever circumstance, he was a backup character that was going to be ready to take over. Now, Decker, obviously, is a very familiar name when you jump over to the motion picture because we do have a character of Decker there. And his role, his function in the show is very, very reminiscent also of William Riker in The Next Generation. He is kind of like the muscle, if you will, in a way. He's kind of like the guy that the captain tells, take care of this, and he takes care of it. You know, he's the number one. That's what he used to call him, number one. So uh, you could see how, like I said earlier, these ideas, if they don't use them, they save them for the next time around. You also had a Delta navigator named Ilea, who is supposed to be somebody that can kind of see images that are projected by other people. She's not necessarily f grabbing onto your feelings or your emotions, but she has some kind of a connection, some kind of a psychic sort of connection with other people. You know, she does have a special power, if you will. And again, in the show, they had a specific actress in mind, which ended up being the same actress they used for the movie. But again, later on, you can kind of tell that this would probably most likely fit the character of Troy in Next Generation. She's the ship counselor who has these psychic kind of connections with people that you can feel their emotions well this character is slightly a little different but kind of like the same thing next we have alan dean foster he is the next person that is going to take a crack at the script alan dean foster a pretty well-known name for us star wars fans nowadays back then this would have been right around the time when he was ghostwriting the novel for star wars better known today as a major movie tie-in novel writer, he's done dozens of <laughs> movie tie-ins, and I probably read a good portion of them. Plus, he also writes his own books. He's, you know, he's a writer on his own accord. But back then, they hired him to see if he could, you know, bring some life into this story that just wasn't working out. No matter which way they try to hit it, it the producers were just not happy with it. So the story that he kind of put together was one that he had written before for an unproduced Gene Roddenberry sci-fi series other than Star Trek, believe it or not, called Genesis 2. Genesis, oh, that's a familiar sounding name. And the story that he wrote for that particular potential show was called Robots Return. 
So the new story now that he writes for the potential Star Trek film is called Indai's Image. Very important because this is the one that's going to carry through over the finish line of what eventually will become the motion picture. By July of 1977, quietly, behind the scenes in Paramount, they are pretty much well aware that the Paramount Network that they're planning on releasing cannot sell enough ad revenue to sustain itself. So at this point, without anybody knowing, obviously not the public and not even, you know, top show executives, but Paramount starts to think of what could be plan B for everything that they've been doing. They just announced that they are going to put out a new series with a new Star Trek show. This is public knowledge now. And behind the scenes, they're already having doubts that they can pull it off. By August of 77, Paramount starts to review the Alan Dean Foster script. And they uh, seem somewhat happy with it. You know, there's still work to be done, but they think they're going in the right direction. You know, as far as what they're telling all the, uh, all the executives of Phase 2. But once again, behind the scenes, they're preparing alternate plans. They are thinking now, well, since we're probably not going to have a network and nobody and not everybody knows about it, and we've invested so much money at this point because they already put in something like a half a million dollars in pre-production, in writing related fees and all these different people that were hired already. Their behind the scenes plan is to continue with at least one major story, let's say, and put together a two-hour television film that they can then show as a pilot to the networks and then try to sell the rights to a network, you know, to distribute it, similar to how it was originally done years ago. Now, keep in mind that the whole point of having this network is so you don't have to go through a distributor. You can do it yourself. You can distribute. You'll be the producer and the distributor. It's the typical, you know, monopoly kind of situation where you want to handle all aspects, you know, of this process. This is not a great option for them personally. It's an embarrassing option because they kind of have to crawl back to the networks and beg them to buy a show from them. It's exactly the type of thing they didn't want to do. Exactly the type of thing that they were boasting about a few months earlier. But they also realized that the second option also would be, once again, a feature film. This, to them, was probably a better option, quietly, because this way they can produce what they're doing and then release it like a film and not have to worry about dealing with networks afterwards. Not have to worry about, you know, the production aspect of continuing it. You can kind of tell that there's two things happening at this point. Paramount Studios is trying to figure out what to do, and they're kind of leaning more and more towards a movie. But they don't want to tell the public about it yet because it's embarrassing to tell them. And because they got to work out all the details of that. In the middle, you have the people producing this new series because they're still under the impression that they're producing a new series. But little by little, as these people continue to work... The people way, way, way on the top, the, you know, Gene Roddenberry, all those high upper people start to realize that there's something else going on here. And some of them are actually told that, listen, at some point we are going in a different direction, but continue working because something, we're going to put out something. We're just not exactly sure what. And they do this for about five months, believe it or not, in terms of they all continue to work hard to the point where 
it goes beyond just writing. It goes into set construction. It goes into hiring actors. You know, they're really moving forward with a production, like a production moves forward. But little do the majority of the people involved understand that what they're putting together is not going to ever air. Because as time goes on, you know, Paramount is more convinced and more convinced that they're going the movie route. And they're thinking of basically recycling in the majority of the stuff that they have. The sets that are being constructed for the, for the television series, they think they can modify them enough to fit a movie set. Some of the actors could also be transferred over to the movie side. The special effects, eh, they, they have to figure out what to do with that. So there's a lot of things. But again, as usual, the writing is the thing that they have to work on the most, which is the thing that's been snagging this project for a long time. Now, the question is, is the writing really a problem or is the indecision the problem? And the writing is an excuse for not moving forward one direction or the other. And the other reasoning behind continuing with a lot of this material being built and used is that some of this other work could be used one day on a future television series, whether one day Paramount will have a television series like they eventually did with Voyager, or if they go the the other network route and let another network distribute their show, you know, they would still have to create a new show like they've done many times afterwards. And now they have some preliminary work they can use. And they ended up doing that in a way, because if you think about it, when you look at the development of the next generation, Many, many of the conceptual work for Next Generation is coming right out of Phase 2. You could see the similarities, not only in the writing, but in the technology and that some of the things that, you know, are adapted later and even up to, you know, today. They continue to go as far as hiring a director, Robert Collins. He is hired as the director in charge of the television movie that will spawn the television series, which... Again, behind closed doors, everybody knows it's not going to happen. And the role of a director is a little different because for a movie, a director usually takes the lead in a very wide manner, you know, to the extent where the director kind of supersedes the writer at times in a movie. But for a television show, directors are usually hired guns because they pre-establish you know, what the show is going to be like, and it's the director's job to be true to that vision that he was established in the beginning. Well, this particular director is the one that's going to start it all. So even though he is a television director, he will have a very strong hand in determining what the show's feel will be like and look. So he is kind of up there in terms of being able to participate in a lot of the creative aspects of the show, you know, alongside the big guns like Gene Roddenberry and some of the other producers. And this goes from September 77, like I mentioned, to October of 77. This is a month-long period of just lots of lots of pre-production work that's being done, you know, moving forward, you know, with the intent that it will be used on something. <laughs> like I said before, most people think it's being used for a television series, but the studio is hedging their bets mostly on a television show or some future use, in, you know, in the future. Around this time, Harold Livingston takes over the writing, the script writing assignment. He has the main story from Alan Dean Foster, who basically wrote the story, and now 
because they can't figure out who can write it or who could, you know, who's good enough to write it, they kind of take it upon themselves to have Harold Livingston, who is one of the producers. He has a pretty long pedigree of, you know, writing history in the past. I think he might have written a lot of episodes for Mission Impossible back in the 60s. But he was one of the key players, one of the top producers for this Phase 2 series. And, you know, he takes a crack at it, and then they submit it to the studios, and now they start to get studio notes. No longer are they just being rejected left and right like they were in the past. Now they're getting direct notes from Michael Eisner, one of the Paramount executives, who obviously you'll, you'll hear his name in the future, but back then he was working at Paramount. And... What's interesting is that the notes that come back suggest different things, but you can kind of, if you, if you kind of go through the notes with a fine tooth comb, you can kind of tell that these notes coming back are suggesting things for a more cinematic suggestion of what things need to be changed. So little by little, it's kind of trickling in, even though no one is making any official announcements, people are starting to kind of realize this is, a, this is going somewhere else. We're just going to keep working, but it's going somewhere else. They get to a point where they have to do a second draft, I believe. You know, they gotta do, they gotta keep tinkering with the, uh, scripts. So Gene Roddenberry takes a crack at the script because that was kind of like the deal they had worked out. Livingston really wasn't crazy about having to write the script, but they needed somebody to do it and do it fast. So he kind of made a deal that, listen, I'll write this first draft and then let Gene have a crack at it and, you know, let it move forward in that direction. And from what I understand, at a very early on, stage, there was already friction forming between Livingston and Roddenberry. Uh, I couldn't tell you the extent of how bad it got. Some of the things I read were pretty crazy. <laughs> but part of it kind of started to show up at this stage. At one point, Livingston apparently submitted a version of the script, and he got a call back from Eisner saying that he didn't like this, he liked that, but he didn't like this. And he was like, well, wait a minute, I, I didn't write that. that. That's not me. And they kind of figure out that a lot of the stuff that they were looking at came from Roddenberry. So Roddenberry was apparently or allegedly rewriting certain things and letting them go <laughs> as a submission to Paramount. Uh, so they got to the point where they said, all right, let's take two scripts. Let's take the Livington script and let's take a Roddenberry script and submit both of them to Paramount and let them kind of figure out which direction to go. And Paramount clearly did not like Roddenberry's version of the script. But obviously, because he is, you know, the guy who created Star Trek and they don't want to completely alienate him, they figured out a compromise that was kind of like, let's take the director, who is a heavy player in this, let him rewrite, let's say, for example, a third draft of the script, but let him take aspects from both Roddenberry and Livingston, and then kind of cobble together a story from those two different versions. And that's what they did at that point in the production. They ended up with a script that is a collaboration, more or less. It's an independent collaboration of these two different writers who, like I said before, are starting not to get along. By December of 77, this is, remember, around the time where Close Encounters is making good money and it's making more money and Paramount is having the epiphany that Star Wars was not a fluke and they're saying, oh my God, we got it. We were wrong. We got to do a movie. So Paramount's guns are aimed at movie. It's got to be a movie. It's got to be a movie. It's got to be a movie. Work on the television series starts to slow down a little more. And the people participating 
the people that are completely unaware of the behind the scenes shenanigans that are going on with Paramount, they all kind of continue to work because, you know, work is work. Plus also, you know, they're theoretically, they're supposed to be shooting pretty soon. And normally around this time, traditionally, is when you start to get the announcements of, listen, this script has to be done tomorrow, or everybody has to be done with this by then. And they kind of all started to realize that the deadlines were not being really enforced too much. So there was a subliminal kind of slowdown happening, as well as a physical slowdown of the work that was being done. And the rumors started to spread, you know, through the gossip columns that Phase 2 was dead. So people were already letting it trickle out there it was leaking out the news was starting to go that paramount was going in a different direction while this is happening the studio continues to deny everything they're still yeah we're going forward it's going to be the greatest thing ever actually we're going to write even more episodes you know they they kind of double down on the lie <laughs> that they're producing this series they do continue writing because you know writing is not as expensive as building sets and constructing stuff, you know, uh, hiring more people. And they always have it, like I said before, in the back of their minds that at least because these scripts are practically already paid for, they might as well finish them up and they're going to have them, you know, put them in storage for a future use someday. And like I mentioned before, eventually they do end up using a lot of that material on future shows. Right around this time, the film budget was around $8 million. And the estimates now, because they are in getting to high gear film mode, they are thinking now it's going to be probably about $15 million, which more or less was what Star Wars's budget was. So they're kind of looking at that kind of, you know, money amount at this point. While they're still thinking that they can reuse a lot of the sets and maybe some of the actors and some of the props, the effects have to be rethought out. And the reason being is that when they were in television mode, they contracted a company called Magicam, and they specialized in television special effects. And even though we're not dealing in high definition back in the 70s, there is a substantial difference between the quality of television and the quality of film. So this particular company, everything that they've been doing up to this point and their specialty really was special effects for television. So... A lot of the materials they constructed, the, the star bases, the spaceships, you know, all these things, they didn't have enough detail for film. So they kind of understand at this point that they're going to have to switch gears. And they go with a company called Robert Abel and Associates. Their claim to fame was that some of the people involved in that company worked on 2001. So that's what they're kind of shooting for in terms of the high quality of special effects. Remember, ILM at this point is only doing Star Wars work. You know, it's December of 77. They're probably doing preliminary work on Empire Strikes Back or something at this point. You never know. But ILM wasn't, you know, the company that it is today that is just a, you know, a gun for hire kind of company. By this time, you know, while Gene Roddenberry continues to supervise the television aspect of the project, even though he's very well aware that this is going, going to go in a different direction. You know, one minute is television, the next minute is film, television, film. You know, they go through this period where it goes back and forth and back and forth. But as far as the who's in charge of what, he is on the television side. And Paramount is already planning on hiring somebody new to direct the movie because they don't really think that Collins, the guy they hired for the television two-hour pilot, you know, has the chops for a film. 
by the end of the year, Harold Livingston delivered, you know, from his sub-writers, the rest or the majority of the rest of all the episode scripts that they were hired to do. And then he departs the show. He does not renew his contract. His contract ends and decides to leave because, again, he was having a really bad relationship <laughs> with Roddenberry. So he wanted to just get away from the whole thing. The estimated budget for the film continues to climb as the months continue. The last time we looked at it, it was $15 million, then it climbs to $18 million, and now they're looking at about $44 million. And that includes all the money. You got to remember that that also includes all the money that was put into the Phase 2 development. They're kind of rolling that into that now at this point, which is more than $500,000 before you know the amount of money they had already spent in the television series. It's way more than that. And another thing that it also includes at this point is negotiations that they were having with Leonard Nimoy. Now that they're in movie mode, they kind of upped the ante, sweetened the pot, and got Nimoy to commit to being in the movie. Letting some of these key players know that they're definitely going the movie route is what solidified or even changed some of their minds into participating. By January of 1978, Robert Weiss is hired as the director. You know, he's the guy from... Uh, Lawrence or Arabia, you know, he's got a uh, Andromeda strain, the, the day the air starts, he's got, you know, he's got a sci-fi street cred and, and just big Hollywood street cred. So that's the kind of person that they wanted, somebody big, a big name, you know, to be the director. At a number of instances, Gene Roddenberry has to rehire Harold Livingston to come back to help with the script a little bit more. The book claims that he quit four times during the making of the movie because of... <laughs> Again, his relationship with Roddenberry. So that's pretty interesting. Nimoy is officially hired, and he basically now replaces the other Vulcan actor who was supposed to play Zahn. So it's interesting that, you know, that happened. Even though eventually that actor ended up playing a bit part in the movie, he's one of the Starfleet Starbase commanders that is telling everybody what's going on and gets destroyed. That actor is gone. But even in the movie, when you think about it, they do kind of play a little bit with Spock not being available. And then a new Vulcan science officer is talking to Kirk. And that science officer is the one that gets killed in the transporter accident. <laughs> so all of a sudden, it's like, oops, we lost our science officer. Now is So that opens up the door for Spock to all of a sudden kind of show up again. Hey, I'm here, guys. <laughs> so it's weird how... They kind of work the shenanigans of he's here, he's not here, he's here, he's not here into the script in a way, in a bizarre way. By March of 1978, Paramount officially announces <laughs> that Star Trek Phase 2 is officially canceled <laughs> even before it started and that the motion picture is announced. So now it's public knowledge. It's no longer just a rumor. It's no longer just a thing that only the top people are aware of. And, you know, they can kind of go full tilt, you know, movie mode at this stage. And that basically marks the end of the television series. As I said before, a lot of the hard work that they did got reused for the movie. A lot of it got shelved for the future. And a lot of it got lost because it wasn't needed. So this is just a story of one type of show. I'm sure this kind of thing repeats itself so many times at different stages of production in so many studios where things that almost happened involve 
a lot of people putting a lot of work into it and then just not getting it done. At the last minute, somebody pulls the plug and all that hard work goes down the drain. At least in something like this, they were able to recoup some of that work. And we got to see it, you know, later on in different manners, in different stages, in different applications. Now, another cool final aspect of this book that I want to mention is the fact that not only do we have all this history, you know, in the book of how everything came about, and like I said before, I can't really go forward because if we really go forward with the making of, you know, what continued, we're really now tippy-toeing deep into the motion picture, and that's a whole other conversation. But what's interesting in the book, like I said, is that not only do you have the making of section, you also have a section where they have all of the scripts, you know, all the stories that they were going to be writing or that they wrote, actually, you know, for those 13 episodes. But you also have the Bible, the writer's Bible, which most shows have, and they're kind of difficult to get your hands on these sometimes because it's one of the most, you know, guarded documents in a production of a television show that only the writers are basically allowed to look at, you know, for writing purposes that gives them all that information. And there were a couple of really cool aspects about the show Bible that is something that I always wondered about. And I'm just going to mention a few of them, but there's tons and tons and tons of them. For example, the star date. The way that they figure the star date is to throw four random numbers together. Then you add like a fraction to it, like a 0.5 or 0.23, you know, something like, or 0.2. And that's it. There's your date. So for example, 1236.5, the 0.5 means it's halfway through a day. So if on the next day your story continues, it would be one, two, three, seven point whatever. If it's the first quarter of the day, you might say point two, for example. I don't know if they went into two actual decimal points, but it's one of these convoluted things that I always try to figure out, you know, where's the story taking place based on these numbers they're throwing at you. And they basically said, don't get caught up on the numbers because they really don't mean that much except for the last couple of digits. The show was supposed to be taking place somewhere between two to 300 years in our future, in the 1972, 73, 74 future, I guess. At that time, warp eight is considered to be the fastest the ship can go. USS Enterprise, for example... The U.S., I always thought it, it stood for United Starship, and it's not. It's United Spaceship. Uh, it's interesting that they use the word space. One of the modifications they made for the Phase 2 series was that they added a second turbo lift to the bridge. Uh, reason being was that, you know, logic or people would probably say, well, how did they get out of the bridge if the turbo lift is not working? <laughs> because the original Enterprise only had one turbo lift. The design of the uh, shuttlecraft this time around was going to look more like an actual, kind of like a rocket ship. It had a kind of like a pointy, you know, tip to it and these expanded wings that kind of tilted up and down a little bit. Uh, more of a traditional look at rocket type of design because the original one, again, you know, they were trying to save money and it was just constructed with very flat pieces. But that was just what they had at the time. They make a clear point that 
whatever radio communication they're using, whatever, however they communicate with Starfleet, for example, has to be faster than whatever speed they can achieve with a ship. They call it subspace radio. And that is because if your ship can travel faster than your radio signals, there's no point in having radio uh, communications because in theory, your ship could arrive to a destination before your message to the destination arrives. So it's always established that whatever communication they're using is moving faster than whatever the, the, the speed of the particular ship you're on is. Another interesting one, similar to the start date, is the space bearing and heading. Whenever you hear Kirk say, 12, Mark, 2-4, change course, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Again, there really is no logic uh, the, the only reason that they don't say north or south is because in space, obviously, there is no north and south. It's a three-dimensional coordinate. So instead of using, you know, more current ones, you know, things that we would understand or at least NASA would understand, they just created their own thing completely. In the pre-production for phase two and then, you know, subsequently the making of the motion picture, uh, NASA allowed... Paramount to borrow a mock-up of the Voyager vehicle to be used for the film because it was an exact duplicate. And overall, the crew numbers in this new ship would have been, and even the, the again, motion picture, would have been about 430 crew members. And the way that Roddenberry wanted it to portray it is that, and this also applied to the casting in terms of the actual people that you would see walking around, all the extras, you know, the crew members, that the ship's complement would go from what it used to be a third female to two-thirds male to half and half, basically. He wanted women to be represented equally on the ship at this point, as far as numbers go. So, again, overall, I recommend this book. It's just a wealth of information. Let me give you the name again. It's called Star Trek Phase 2, The Lost Series by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. The untold story behind the Star Trek television series that almost was. One notable point that they go into the book and they speculate. Now, granted, they're speculating based on 1997 events, meaning you already had Next Generation, you already had... DS9 is still has come and gone, I believe, and maybe Voyager is there, and I think it might have already ended, or it's on its way out. I forget exactly the dates. Enterprise is nowhere near in the horizon at that point. But they do speculate, the writers, that if this show would have gone on the air under the premise, or under the umbrella of this Paramount network that originally was going to go up, most likely the show would have lasted very short amount of time based on, again, even how they calculate ratings, even, you know, almost 10 years later, it would have still suffered and the movies might not have gotten made, you know, in the manner that we see them now, you know, the decision to go for a movie, they speculate was a good idea because it gave them a little more independence to be able to live with the results of the movie, whether it's a failure or a success. The movie itself, as far as I'm concerned, is somewhat of a success. It's not a blockbustery, oh my God, you know, hang on to your popcorn type of movie. But it did, remember, only a few years later, give us Star Trek 2, which is the best of all of them, as far as I know. And it 
gave enough, you know, power to the franchise to push it along through so many more other sequels. So, yeah, it is possible that, you know, when you throw a television show in the mix, it might have just kind of slowed everything down a little bit. Now, we had The Next Generation, and it kind of started out a little slow and then worked its way up, you know, to become a really good show and same thing with ds9 and some of these other shows now granted as the shows continued you know the premieres were fantastic and then the numbers started to plummet with enterprise being you know the last casualty of that with the movies we had a similar reaction there was some you know fresh interest you know when you switch to the uh first next generation crew and uh, obviously when you switch to jj uh, abrams that was a pretty big hit you know, so all of a sudden you see these peaks and then these valleys come about, you know, with the franchise. And now we are in Discovery. And as far as I'm concerned, we're in that peak now. This is a very strong start as far as I've seen the shows, you know, that they put out so far. The shows had some controversy already, just like most of these Star Trek shows. In terms of uh, creatives at the beginning, dropped out and new people were brought in. I haven't seen... You know, the show suffer for it yet, but the model of how and the manner of how Phase 2 was starting to get put together is something that is really, really interesting because it's that whole thing about, you know, seeing how the sausage is made. You know, sometimes you just cannot believe, you know, the shenanigans, the behind the scenes wranglings, the the backstabbing, the deal making, the studios interfering with the artists, the artists wanting to do their own thing, people not getting along. It's a whole other world. I mean, it's a whole other story, aside from what you're actually watching <laughs> on television. So, once again, strongly recommended. Get this book. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We went over the history of Star Trek Phase Two, the show that almost got made. <laughs> And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we eventually got to see some of those aspects of the show, you know, sprinkled all over other Star Trek material in the future. And even up to today, one of my favorite Enterprise designs from the current Discovery show was inspired by the original concept art for Star Trek. We will continue to explore Trek in the future, but for now, I'd like to thank everyone for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. An army of technicians has been working for years to perfect this great starship. When completed, it will be superior to anything in space. But time has run out, and the ship must depart, unfinished, in search of the greatest mystery ever to confront the human race. Star Trek. Motion picture rated G. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. 
Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>